We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. You're listening to Business Weekly on Intelligence Squared. In this week's episode, we're featuring the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast, in which host Chris Hurst cuts through the bullshit and gets to the heart of modern leadership. And in this episode, he speaks to Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, about his style and strategy of leadership, as well as how he feels being one of the most well-known Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who is not a billionaire. It's a really fascinating conversation, and if you do enjoy it, you can search for the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast in your podcast app or via the link in our episode description and listen back to Season 1 and Season 2 today. But now, let's go to the episode. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm great, thanks, Farah. What have you got for me in today's quick fire round? Today, we're looking at the world of tech and innovation. Are you ready? Let's go for it. Snapchat or TikTok? Can I say neither? Um, obviously, because I work in media, I'm incredibly familiar with both. So You're literally trying to bullshit me right now, Chris. I'm <laughs> never off Snapchat. Um, we're inseparable. Great. Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? I think Elon, first name terms, obviously, me and Elon. I just think he's just a crazy genius. Bill Gates or Steve Jobs? I think Bill Gates... I think Bill Gates is is a genuinely remarkable man. He's the greatest philanthropist there's ever been. And he's not just giving money away, I say just, but he, the scale of his ambition that he wants to achieve with that. And you know what? You kind of think he might just succeed. Apple Music or Spotify? Spotify. I think Spotify is a genuinely, fabulously thought through 
uh, product that I use all the time. Sheryl Sandberg or Mark Zuckerberg? Sheryl Sandberg. First of all, she's she's done it twice. I mean, she transformed Google uh, and then transformed Facebook. And I just think she's a real international icon. And finally, Silicon Valley or the famous Silicon Roundabout? It's a tough one, but I'm going to go Silicon Roundabout because I live about five minutes away and there's a great kebab shop on the corner. And I'm sure they've got lots of stuff going for them in Silicon Valley, but have they got a great kebab shop? Even though I said it's famous, most people probably won't know what that is. So you might need to tell our American audience what the Silicon Roundabout is. Well, a kebab shop is somewhere where they... (laughs) No, Silicon Roundabout is London's equivalent of uh, Silicon Valley, which is literally a roundabout in East London with apparently some tech companies around it. Um, I don't know whether there even are any, but that's the rumour. And just before we get to the episode, it's worth noting to our listeners that this was recorded earlier this year in February before the coronavirus pandemic disrupted all of our lives and the UK went into lockdown. Hello and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership podcast powered by Intelligence Squared. I'm Chris Hurst, author of No Bullshit Leadership, and in my day job, I'm global CEO of Havas Creative Group. Leadership is difficult but not complicated. In this podcast series, I want to help you cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by a different inspirational leader who is doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, technology, sports or politics. Today's episode is with the Wikipedia founder and internet pioneer, Jimmy Wales. Jimmy Wales is one of the most influential leaders of the internet age and perhaps the most successful Silicon Valley entrepreneur to not become a billionaire. He experimented with crowdfunding before it was a thing and even came up with Deliveroo before they did. 1.5 billion devices access Wikipedia every single month and it's not an exaggeration to say that across the world Wikipedia has changed the way we access knowledge. Welcome to the podcast, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. In three words, describe your leadership style. <laughs> Friendly. I try to be thoughtful and lazy. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, very but, good. No, but, no, not that surprising. Yeah. I've got some sympathy <laughs> with that. Um, if you could delete any word from the business or leadership jargon dictionary, what would it be? Crowdsourcing. I can explain why. Crowdsourcing, yes, please do. crowdsourcing comes from the word outsourcing, which is all about thinking about where do you find cheap labor. And if you think of your community around your work as cheap labor, you've got it all wrong. It's about finding out what they want to do and support them. Which leader do you most admire, present or past? I don't think I can single out any one in particular. Um, I can. I, it's more I can s- single out the type. Yeah. I like a leader who is very thoughtful and slow and reflective. So basically, if you think of Donald Trump and then imagine the opposite, that's who I like. Okay. (laughs) I wondered if we get Trump in there somewhere. And what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I was very sensitive as a child. And if somebody said something that hurt my feelings, I would be very upset. And my father said, you shouldn't care so much what other people think. And I'm like, okay. Well, you've certainly stuck with that. I've stuck with that. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, Your parents know best. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, and final question, what's the best decision you've ever made? I think the best decision I've ever made, and I used to say this in two ways. So I think the best decision I've ever made is to put Wikipedia into the nonprofit uh, structure. Uh, but I, I used to say it like this, it's the best decision and the worst decision I ever made as a joke because now I'm not a billionaire. But I stopped saying that worst part because 
people would take that far too seriously. Oh, he really regrets not being a billionaire. It's the worst decision he ever made. I'm like, you know, it's a joke. Like, it's the best. Trust me. So what does a billion hits a month feel like? It's an amazing thing. I mean, every uh, month we see 1.5 billion devices. And that's not necessarily 1.5 billion people because probably uh, you see Wikipedia on your phone and on your desktop computer, you know, so two devices. But we still think it's probably 600, 700 million people every month. So we're part of the infrastructure of the world, really, now. Uh, it's something people rely on whenever they want to know something. So, so. For, for reasons you just explained, just about everybody's familiar with Wikipedia because mm. we're all visiting it all the time. Yes. I, I'm, I'm guessing most people or many people will be less familiar with WT Social. Do you want to tell us a bit about what that is? Yeah. Well, WT Social, Wiki Tribune Social, is my new project, new platform. The concept here, and I can go on quite a rant about what's broken Please do. about the Please pearl. do. Well, my <laughs> next question was, does the world really need another social media business? So yes, that might be a, yes, good, it uh, definitely a good segue. Does. <laughs> um, well, I started this project a couple of years ago, realizing that something's terribly wrong with the news. You know, we see the rise of low quality media, clickbait, headlines, real fake news, which is a thing that does exist. It's not, you know, Donald Trump calls everything he doesn't like fake news, but uh, there is a real phenomenon. And I just thought, you know, I need to, I need to figure something out here. Um, I think everybody has a responsibility to say, look, something's wrong in the world. Let's try and fix it. What is the environment that's causing that? That's what we need to fix. There's nothing wrong with journalism. Journalism is great. There's great journalists out there. It's the media that they're working in. And so for me, this is where the, the real realization is that the advertising only business model of Facebook and Twitter um, in particular because they're the ones who most deal with news. Obviously, there's other social platforms, but their business model is to show you as many ads as possible, to keep you engaged, to keep you clicking, which leads to a do design. You think, do you think ads get – I mean, I'm not sure that ads keep people engaged. I mean, I work in advertising. People spend a lot of time trying to avoid ads. Yeah, and I'm, by the way, I'm not anti-advertising. No, no, I, I, no, you, I, but, no, no. I, but the but point I, but is, I, yeah, it's – no, it's not necessarily the ads, but they want to show as many ads. Yes, as that's possible, for sure. Right? They do, yeah. And obviously, I mean, from their perspective, they want you to pay for the ad. So it needs to have some return for you. Yes. That's good. But they'd rather somebody just look at your ad and then stay on Facebook right, and not go off and engage with your uh, amazing creative sure. uh, thing. Anyway, the point is that in in that environment, what they want to optimize is for people's time on site, which leads to optimizing for – clickbait headlines, for fluffy content, for shareable viral things, uh, because that's what keeps us addicted, even though there's another part of our minds that says that's not really what I want. People are you know, familiar with the, the mail online's, their, their layout where they've got whatever sort of screaming headline story they've got here, and then they've got their sidebar of shame, as it's called, yeah. which is all celebrity, uh, fluffy nonsense, and uh, lots of bikinis. There's always bikinis there. And that's because that's what people click on. And so I said, look, what if we had a different kind of social network where everything is optimized around content that the community, a community very much like the Wikipedia community, has decided is quality. Like these are quality things that you should read. These are things that you're going to find interesting. Is, is it a news site or a social site or something 
new that we don't it's, the like of which we don't quite have at the moment it's, it's it's something completely new i would say so it is it is primarily a social site we we say it's a social site focused on news but it's an unusual social site so every post or nearly every post uh is collaboratively editable so the idea is like i can post something and say oh here's here's a, a good link to the center for disease controls article about uh, coronavirus and their current thinking about that. And then somebody else can come and say, oh, well, here's actually a similar one from the UK. And they can you can build something together to say, here's a reference to this news topic. We've launched with no ads uh, and no paywall. So a series of bad business decisions, but that's how I've built my <laughs> career so far. And the idea is to say, look, we can find a different model for, for social media. And so the model I am learned from and created with Wikipedia is to say, Look, pay for it if you want to. There's a place. We do ask you to pay. You don't have to pay. And what I want people to think about is what does that do to our incentives? So inside the Our incentives as in within your organization. Within the organization. So for my my incentive. So with WT Social, the fact that we don't have ads and we don't have a paywall means, wow, the only reason you'll pay – is the same only reason you pay for Wikipedia is if you say, you know what, this is meaningful. Like this is something that I think should exist in the world. It's made my life better. I should chip in. I I believe in this. And that's a very different incentive from my incentive if I say, how do I get you on the site for three more minutes a day? And are people doing that? In Yeah, we've, we've had a huge success. I mean, it's I was hoping to see one out of every 200 people pay. That was my back-of-the-envelope estimate that if we got that, we would be able to, to go forward. And it's a lot better than that. Wow. It's, you know, it's, it's good. Now, time will tell, right? Uh, first of all, this is the early adopter crowd. So this is people who know my work. Uh, they're interested. They, they think like I do that, hey, I do think something like this should exist. I'm happy to chip in to help Jimmy try to realize this. Whether we can grow beyond that where we have not 500,000 people but 500 million people and we still see one out of every 200 pay to be seen. Can I take you, take you back a, a few years? When did you realize – first realize the revolutionary potential of the internet? And I suppose um, obvious follow-up question, has yeah. it lived up to or down to your <laughs> expectations? Yeah, I mean actually quite early on. I remember – Back at university, I joined a politics discussion list and I sent an email to someone and then they responded that they were in Australia. And I was like, wow, Australia, you know, I'm a kid in Alabama. It's hard to even conceive of such a thing. I was actually worried that the university was going to be angry because I'd somehow run up a long distance phone bill. I had no idea how the structure of the internet worked. I'm like, how did the email get from Australia? Did I'm, I'm imagining a dial up, you know, they had to call the computer and anyway, I had that I'm all wrong. My first but, admission, by the way, is I, I did a degree in engineering and I, I remember very clearly going to the, the um, computer science lab as it was then and, and being given something that they described as an email address right. <laughs> uh, and thinking to myself, I cannot conceive of any possible use for this whatsoever and sent one in my four years at engineering. Oh, so amazing. that is that's slightly brilliant. shameful. So is, I ended funny. up in advertising, yeah. so draw yeah. your own conclusions. Well, yeah, I mean, given how destroyed my inbox is, I, I sometimes think, what is the point of email? It's yeah. ruining my life. Anyway, so that was that was quite early on, uh, you know, sort of realizing that this could be very powerful. And then as the internet started to grow 
this is what I always say about Wikipedia. One of the reasons Wikipedia is so successful is that I think almost everybody, when they first got on the internet and they first realized, hey, we can talk to people, there is this quite utopian thought of, wow, people can – I can learn about the world. People can share knowledge all around the world. And, that, and that's how and it then, was – that's very much how the internet was seen. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. it wasn't – it would bring well, then, down totalitarian so states in the, and all this kind of in thing, the, wasn't it? In the dot-com – Boom, it started to feel like it was all pop-up ads and, you know, selling dog food and so forth. And that was when I launched Wikipedia. And I, and I think a lot of people thought, so this oh, is, this yeah, two, this, is, this is 2000. 2001, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of people thought, wow, yeah, this is great. Like sharing knowledge, that that is what the internet's for. That's what I thought it was about. And now we can do that. So it was it was very successful and popular. Now, has the internet lived? It has, absolutely. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the internet. I'm a big critic of certain problems that we have right now. Um, and Do you think net the positives? Net the positives are, are enormous. And, you know, the... The, the openness, um, the communication, the, you know, I have a lot of concerns about censorship, for example, but the internet makes censorship very, very difficult, obviously not impossible. Is fake news, or at least the uh, institutionalized fake news, where mm. it's not just people, individuals giving their opinion, but is that a form of censorship in the sense that if you just put enough fake stuff out there, it's hard to tell that... It's hard to tell what's real. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, certainly what we are seeing is state-backed disinformation campaigns, which is – I wouldn't call it censorship exactly because that's a particular concept. Mm. But it's in that realm of misleading people, confusing people, you know, flood the zone with so much nonsense that it's hard for people to even know what's going on, what's true or not. I mean, my example of this is most recently is – Maybe Ukraine is the one who hacked those servers. It's like, no, like literally no. There's zero evidence of that. And just saying it a thousand times doesn't make it something that's actually true. But saying it a thousand times means a lot of people who aren't sort of digging in and paying attention are thinking, oh – I don't. I can't. There was some scandal. I don't know. Was it Ukraine hacked the servers, or were the Russians? Or I, I, I mean, I find myself doing mm. that increasingly now. Even when I see a photograph now, if mm. I see it on a social media platform, mm. I will, particularly if it's a photograph being, look at this, or wow, can you believe this person did this? Yeah, I will try and find out where yeah. that photograph came from. But one of the it's things made me sort of at least yeah. question more, which maybe is a good thing. Yeah, I think it is. I think I think if we all step back and say what where. What is the information we're receiving and where does it come from? Is it quality? This is something I think should be taught in schools in a much more aggressive way than it ever had to be in the past. Because in the past, the range of information sources open to you was fairly narrow compared to today. Today, you know, you if you want to know about coronavirus, right, you can, you can get everything from crank crazy people blogs, rumors on Twitter to serious sort of thoughtful things from official agencies – to actually – and also this is a funny way of thinking about it, but I was looking at a uh, an academic medical journal, a scientific paper about sequencing coronavirus, and I was reading it and I thought this is actually potentially misinforming because I literally have no idea what I'm reading. I'm not an expert in this. Like I could take one sentence here and misunderstand it and come away with the belief. So I actually don't need to read the, the direct scientific literature. I need somebody – who does yeah, really, to intermediate it? To intermediate yes, and explain yes, yes. it to me. Um, and the question then is, who do you trust to do that? I suppose. Yeah, where I do mean, you find those people? You know, one of the things I find very interesting is, 
when we look at the Edelman Trust Barometer Survey, which they've been doing every year for, for a long time, that uh, in the most recent survey, it's still the case that the most trusted group in society is scientists. And that's like, that's really good it's news, encouraging. Um, yeah. given that amount of science skepticism that we see, given, you know, the, the anti-vaxxers. And um, I was really happy to see the head of climate the NHS change, complain about goop the other day. I'm like, great. <laughs> yeah, climate change, not, you know, all of these things. But people still do trust scientists. And I do think I'm I'm quite old fashioned in a way about that sort of thing. Who do I trust? I trust thoughtful experts. Yes, me too. You know? I'm exactly the opposite. I'm absolutely not fed up of experts. I love oh, yeah, hearing yeah. from experts. Yeah, exactly. It's actually quite invigorating. Exactly. And uh, so, yeah, it's um, it's a it's a funny time in history. As well as a company leader, you you genuinely are a thought leader. Uh, what gives you your sense of achievement? A lot of things. I mean, certainly, I'm quite proud of. Wikipedia and what the Wikipedia community has accomplished. You know, some meaningful moments for me are, you know, times I I like when I'm traveling, I like to visit schools in the developing world because I'm really interested in education and what's going on there. And when I meet young people in a very poor area, but they've all got a mobile phone and they all know Wikipedia uh, because they use it for their homework and they don't have, you know, the school doesn't have any books in the library. You know, it's that sort of thing. And realizing like, wow, this is actually impacting people's lives in a positive way that they're able to learn what they want to know. I mean, that's a fantastic thing. I mean, it's a really wonderful piece of it. So that gives me a sense of achievement. Do you feel it also comes with a, a heavy responsibility for you personally? Um, yeah, definitely. Or do you feel I it mean, sits with the community or do you sort of share well, it with the community? Or? I'm part of the community, so I feel it. You know, I think we should feel it. We do feel it. You know, when you're part of the infrastructure of the world in the way that we are, we do have a heavy responsibility to, to get it right, to, to do the best we can. Obviously, Wikipedia has errors. It will always have errors. Doing quality reference material is really, really hard and, and mistakes will be made. But you particularly see uh, – and I actually haven't looked this up, but I can guarantee you if you go – there's a page online. You can look up the traffic to Wikipedia pages. Our traffic about coronavirus has gone through the roof. And that is because people are typing it into search engines and then they're, they're going down the list. And they're going to click on Wikipedia because they trust Wikipedia. They know, of course, it isn't perfect and so forth, but they also know that it's honest. Uh, and that it's calm and that it's going to be fact-based. And so then you say, well, the people who are working on that, they have a heavy responsibility. I mean, treat us to your role as a leader and a founder and I suppose as a figurehead with with all, all of your ventures. I mean, do, do you – they are obviously very, very heavily community-driven. Very. They yeah. are. I mean, they are, they are, ba- they are founded yeah. in the principles of a community. Yeah. Do you look at it sometimes and think, oh, we're, you know – this well, bit's getting away from us and we need to change our I mean, procedures or I, yeah i mean there are definitely times when you know i i say look we we need to find a solution here one of the issues we have is it's become very hard to become an administrator and people agree it should be easier to become an administrator now there's five different proposals for how to do that and none of them has majority support, and therefore we're stuck. And we've been stuck for a couple of years at least, you know. And I was like, yeah, okay, I know that feeling, right? And so you have to sort of go through some sort of a process to, to get consensus. And ultimately, get, does, does, do, do challenges like that, ultimately, do they end up on your 
desk or your, I don't know, your um, mobile phone. Not really. I mean. Not not or, anymore. No, I don't get involved in day to day policy, but I I weigh in from time to time, and people do listen, so I have influence there. But that's always been the case, right? It's just it's the nature of a community of volunteers. You can't boss people around and tell them what to do because they, they'll just go, "No, I'm not going to do that," and that's that. So you have to bring people on board. Which, by the way, I I believe is actually you know when I speak to businesses and about leadership, I say, you know what, that's actually true in businesses as well, right? If you think I'm going to tell people what to do and I have to do it because I pay them, you're going to be sorely disappointed because unless people genuinely want to do the thing and they genuine buy-in, yeah, they'll probably do it because they don't want to get fired, but they're not going to be happy. They're going to leave as soon as they can or they're going to do what you're demanding in a half-hearted way. I mean, that's that's certainly my my view and belief is that the, the if you like the top-down management style, which is I think what you're command mm. and control, let's yeah. say, which is what I think you're describing. Yes. I think m- maybe that worked once. I, I don't know, but I certainly think it doesn't work now. No. I mean, um, I, I think it only ever worked in sort of the worst of situations where it's you know uh, your job is to stand here by a machine and turn that screw. And you need to do this many per hour and you can only take breaks here and there. And it just doesn't really work in any kind of employment that involves human creativity and thinking, which, by the way, everything does. Yeah, everything and, does. And so, you know, that trusting people, training them so they have the capacity to deal with whatever comes up and then trusting them to just deal with it is the only way. The way I think talk about that is I think that's that is fundamentally about organizational culture. It's creating an environment mm. where uh, where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, mm. I suppose. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, one of the lessons from the from the Wikipedia world is that talent is much more widely distributed in society than people might have originally thought. Truth is, lots of people are are polymaths. They have lots of different interests, and there are lots of different talents. And young or old, you know, they're able to to dig deep and, and do something. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation 
of George Orwell's classic. 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Has failure played a role in your success? Definitely, definitely. In fact, I I often, if I'm asked to speak to entrepreneurs, and particularly young entrepreneurs, I always come in and say, oh, well, here I am, and you think I'm going to tell you an inspirational story of my success, but I'm actually going to tell you about all my failures. People love hearing about failures. Yeah, (laughs) and I actually think it's more, more interesting. It's more important. It certainly helps you understand how I got where I am. Uh, you know, like the, the tagline in the speech is failure. Jimmy Wills is good at it. And, <laughs> you know, it, it is true. And it's, it's actually, you know, it's when I start something new now, it's both a lot easier for me and in a certain psychological way, a lot harder. Um, and this is what I tell young entrepreneurs. I'm like, go out, try your thing and fail. And guess what? If it fails, nobody's even going to know. What's like the, literally nobody's paying attention to you. If I go out and fail, everybody's like, <laughs> and that's great. I've, I'm over it. Like I don't what, care. What's the, what's the, what's the biggest or most in, uh, important lesson failures to you? I've learned a lot of lessons, you know, things like, I mean, you jokingly said in the intro that I invented Deliveroo before Deliveroo, but I did try to do a, a online food ordering business. And that one, it was just too early. Like, people didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And, you know, in 1996, restaurant owners in particular were like, what, you mean a fax machine? Like, they don't even know what the web is or the internet. So here's what I I say to young members. Like, first of all, when things aren't going well, you have to be willing to persist and push through and solve those problems. And people may doubt you. They may not agree. And you just have to push through and, and make it happen. Also... You need to realize when something's not working that you need to radically pivot and change. The problem is these are completely contradictory bits of advice, right? So you hit a problem and you think, should I stop doing this and go to something completely different or should I push through? And that's the art of entrepreneurship really is, is learning over time to recognize as fast as you can, hey, this is, this is not working because I need to tweak this, that, and the other, or this is fundamentally a bad idea. This is never going to work and I need to change completely. And you never know. Like that's the – in some ways that's the joy of entrepreneurship, but it's also the pain of entrepreneurship. I mean by, by any measure, you've been incredibly successful. What do you think your, your greatest strengths are? Uh, I'm, I'm a very friendly person. <laughs> a very <laughs> friendly, friendly, very person. friendly person. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting because you, you, you're reading about different business leaders. People can be successful with very different styles. For sure. And so you've got sort of legendary, the Steve Jobs, kind of a tyrant, right? But a genius, a creative genius and bullies people through things and, and they, and pushes them hard to achieve more than they ever could have. And that's a style that's totally not me. I, I was just not, I can't do that. I'm just not that type of person. And my approach is much more friendly. Like, I'm just like, I like people and, um, you know, like, let's have some fun and let's try something interesting and so on. And so, and that's, that's not a perfect leadership style. You know, it's got its problems. I'm often, I'm very bad at firing people who need to be fired because I'm just too nice. And I just think, you know, well, let's try and figure out. How to, how to, what can this person do? How can we improve? And so on, which is good in a way, but you can go too far with it. So I'm, that's a weakness of mine. Do you think you're just 
are not afraid of fate? Or does it just I mean, not enter your head? Is that just not a, a, an equation I mean, you consider? I, you have to consider it a bit and you, you have to be – I mean you're, you're a little afraid. There was a story uh, in Wired about Wiki Tribune uh, when I was in the middle of a pivot. So we had – the old model wasn't working. I laid off all the journalists and the headline like, he was going to save journalism. He failed, right? That was, I forget the exact quote. But I'm like, well, that that's actually ouch, right? Uh, and by the way – you got all the facts wrong. We didn't fire all the staff, only the journalists. Fake news. You know, fake news. Um, but, you know, those kinds of things, you know, like people say to me, are you nervous when you get up to give a speech? Is I give speeches a lot of that? No, no, zero, not at all. And, I mean, there is, a, there is a part of me that just in my mind there's a piece that says, I don't care what you think of me, right? Because go fuck yourself. I invented Wikipedia. So I'm happy, right? <laughs> I, I, I don't feel I've not contributed to the world. I don't feel I've not done a good thing. So anything else I want to do now, it's, it's my right to like screw things up and do it wrong and fail and, and whatever. It's a little embarrassing when a failure happens, but it's really more about saying, you know what? Actually, if, if you want to innovate, unless you're, on the brink of failure in some sense, you're probably not actually innovating, right? You're not trying something new because if you're trying something new and untested, obviously you're going to get it wrong sometimes. You'll get it right sometimes as well. I always say this about the money question. I live here in London and the number of bankers in the city right here who make far more money than I ever will, right, is huge. I have no idea. There's lots of them and they're very wealthy, right? And I'm like, I wouldn't trade with any of them for a second because – I, I mean, my life is so interesting. I can go anywhere and see anybody. And if I go to a country and I want to meet the president, I just, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, the Wikipedia guy, I'll meet him. That's amazing. Like, what what a treat in life to know that I can do whatever I want in that sense. Not on my own jet. Right? <laughs> you know, you can buy plane tickets. <laughs> you, you mentioned you mentioned earlier there was a there was a story behind the Neely Deliveroo. Did yeah, I, yeah. What, what is that? Yeah, so I, I did I, – it was exactly, you know, what I was saying. Like I set up a business like quite early on on the internet and I was working in downtown Chicago and we were – you know, people order lunch out and you had to fax in your order or call and a lot of mistakes and all that. And I just – I knew like I'm on the internet. I'm like this, this is obviously going to move on the internet, that you'll be able to go on a website and order food from anywhere you want and have it delivered. And so I built the website and sort of got a system for putting menus in. It was all very primitive and so on. And then I went out to local restaurants. I literally couldn't convince them to, to sign up. They were just like, I, don't, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. P- order food on the internet. Like, that, what, what? like, I can't even understand that. So I was like, okay, <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> there you go. Maybe every, maybe every idea has its time. As I well think as- every idea has its time. And actually, this is another thing I, I talk about to – Young entrepreneurs and actually also to policymakers and, and sort of a cultural point. One of the fantastic things about the Silicon Valley culture, which has its flaws, of course, but one of the great things about it is the idea that if you try a startup and it fails, that doesn't mean your career is over and that you're a loser. And in fact, what it probably means is you're too early, you're too late, you know, there's always reasons. And if you learned from it, then you're likely to get a second backing or you're going to get a fantastic job at Google or something like that. And in a lot of cultures, particularly in the East, uh, actually continental Europe is is not perfect in this regard. There is this sense that if you try to do a startup and you fail, it's going to be shameful and you're probably going to damage your job prospects in the future and so on and so forth. And certainly anybody in a position of 
power. Like if you're hiring someone uh, at a big company in Paris, I hope nobody looks at a, a failed entrepreneur and says, hmm, failed, right? I hope they say, oh, that's super interesting, right? I've got all these other sort of people who've never tried anything in their life. I agree with that entirely. I think timing is interesting as well. I, I heard somebody talking about 4G and 5G, and an idea is relevant to the technology context that it's launched in as well. So 4G enabled mm. Uber. Uber couldn't have existed with mm. 3G. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting conversation now, which is what will 5G enable Mm-hmm. Maybe there's somebody's had a Deliveroo type mm-hmm. idea that's died that will will yeah. thrive once five G comes. I, I along. think that's exactly right. You know, sometimes people ask me, "What do you think the next big thing in tech is well, going to be?" Well, that is my that yeah. was nearly my next question. <laughs> and I always say, "Look, I'm an entrepreneur, so if I knew that, I'd start building it." My final question then. So you nearly touched on this, but what next for you? I'm 100% focused right now on WT Social, so Wiki Tribune Social. If people like my ideas and they've heard this, I please come and sign up. Um, please pay if you want to, but you don't have to. I just think we can build something new and different uh, in the area of social media that will help save journalism and therefore help save the world. Jimmy Wells, thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, great to be here. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run. Or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.